the most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I am joined by actor and comedian Nick Kroll. You may have seen his work on TV shows like The League, Kroll Show, or What We Do in the Shadows, or films including Adult Beginners, Loving, and most recently, Don't Worry Darling. After an 11-year hiatus, he's returned to stand-up comedy with his new special, Little Big Boy, which explores everything from his childhood in Westchester County to becoming a new father in the pandemic. In contrast to his beloved sketch work, this new special is more front-facing than anything Kroll has made in his career. It's vulnerable and reflective, featuring a series of inflection points that have shaped the husband and father he is today. It's also, I should add, very, very funny and silly, full of as many poop and puberty jokes you'd expect from the co-creator of the hit animated series, Big Mouth, which, by the way, returns for season six, October 28th, only on Netflix. In our talk, Nick and I dive into all of this and more, including how this new special came to be, the day he decided to pursue comedy, a formative experience chauffeuring Harrison Ford, and why he remains open to evolving in this ever-changing comedic landscape. I hope you enjoy. Nick Kroll. Hi. What a pleasure. Thank you for having me. How you feeling? Well, we just waited a few minutes to start this so that I could pound iced coffee and eat a half a croissant because I'm feeling lightly depleted. <laughs> That's how I'm doing. But I'm doing great. You know what? That's a great place to start. <laughs> I have been seeing you all over recently. Mm. Don't worry, darling. What we do in the shadows. Season six of Big Mouth your latest stand-up special. I've been seeing you everywhere except the basketball court. <laughs> the one place we really genuinely bonded. When do you come back? Are you day-to-day? -day? Are you out? It's been a while since we've actually played basketball together, but there's a couple of years where we were in a game, a Sunday game, and you're a very good basketball player. Okay. For our group, you're very good. <laughs> <laughs> the low bar. Yeah, for men in their 30s and 40s, you're very good. Uh, to be fair, I had the upper hand because I... I'm younger. But I don't think it's due to the fact that you're younger <laughs> that you're better, but I'll take it. 
we were playing somewhat regularly and I loved it. And then life has gotten busy, as you mentioned, to my projects. And then also I had a child. So some of like Sunday now is much more guarded than it was when I was a single man with no children. So now you're married, you have a kid. Yeah. That's very much folded into this new special of yours. Mm -hmm. Now, as I understand it, this came to be because your wife, who was then your girlfriend at the time, said, I think it's time you do an hour. Yeah. Yeah. So we were, this is, I guess, like 2018. We were dating. We were on vacation. She had been, before we met, like a comedy fan to the point where she had, we matched on a, a dating app because she had watched The League that I was on for many years on FX. And, and she was like, I fucking hate this guy. My character, right. Ruxin. She's like, I really hate this guy. She's like, but you know what? It's like, it'll be a laugh. We matched and then we went out and she realized I was not like that character and we hit it off and started dating and we were on vacation and she was like, why don't you do an hour? And I was sort of like, I don't know. That's for other, that's for Mulaney. That's for Ali Wong. That's for all my friends who are like the best standups working. And, but I, the more I thought about it, the more I was like, you know, I, I think it was partly due to the fact that I didn't want to be that personal, that revelatory in my stand-up. I'd always done stand-up, but it had always been sort of a side gig, and it was sort of something that I wasn't like, this is how I'll put my art out there in a real way and really commit myself to it. Because to do an hour, you really have to like, I mean, I'll make the analogy to basketball. It's fun fucking around on a Sunday, super low stakes, and that's how kind of I was doing stand-up in that I was like, ah, I'll do Largo, I'll do you know sets around town, but I wasn't like committing myself enough where I was like, oh, I feel so in the flow that I've got enough that I'm like, I feel great about this. So I would enjoy playing basketball, but I would leave every week super frustrated because I was not playing the way that I felt like I knew I could. I feel like I've opened a wound here. You have. You've really opened it up for me. But that consistency applied to stand-up too, that you weren't doing it enough. Yeah, and it was like, you really have to be like, I'm going to make this a massive priority in my life. And after that conversation with my girlfriend at the time, my now wife, Lily, I was like, you know what? Fuck it. No, like, let's go do this. Let's go put in the time. And it meant like for the first half of 2019, going out, I don't know how many nights a week to bring all the material that I had been messing around with together to have some version of an hour to then really tour it the second half of 2019, which I did. I was going to shoot it in June 2020. And then the pandemic happened, lockdown happened. Uh, so that all stalled everything out until two years later, 2022, June of 2022, when I then was able to shoot it in D.C. And much of the act had changed based on what had happened during lockdown and in my life. You have this quote, you said, before the lockdown, the special was thematically about this feeling where I had turned 40, and yet there were still elements to myself that I felt were not entirely grown up. What was that nagging feeling at 40? Well, when I turned 40, I had barely started dating Lily. You know, I was still not married. I had no children. And it was like, it wasn't like I was a mess, but there were still elements in my life that still felt very much like a child. Like what? Well, like being obsessed with snacks, having no control over my food. You know, in the special, that's like I keep shitting my pants like a child. <laughs> there, There's the jokey stuff like shitting your pants, which right. in reality, it wasn't like I was doing it like three times a week like a baby. Yeah, it was only once. It was once a week at most. I was just still living as a single man. And when you're living as a single man, there are elements that are just like childlike. Your fridge could have nothing in it or it could be filled with fucking Cheetos. <laughs> and yet I still very much felt like an adult who was like, you know, was running a business and had a lot of very adult responsibilities. And so I think the special thematically or the tour at that point was the push and pull of those things. So this new special, in contrast to the last one, is more vulnerable, more honest, maybe a little more introspective. Mm -hmm. Did getting married and then having a kid... Did that make it seem like something you had to do? Mm. I honestly think it's all tied together, which was that my special was called Thank You Very Cool. It came out in, I don't know, like let's say 2012. And it was a mix of stand-up and characters. You know, there was a lot of character work. So much of my comedy was character work leading up to the special, really. Because it was kind of easier to hide behind characters. And, and I still love doing characters. And frankly, people... I'd much rather hear me do a character than be myself, which I get. But I think the two go hand in hand, which was by the time I then did my second, this this special little big boy and got married and it was all exercises in 
vulnerability in allowing more intimacy, allowing more of a connection. They're tied very much together, which was if I was going to get married and build a real relationship with someone, I had to like let down some of the walls that I had in my life. Simultaneously, that then led to doing the same in, in my art. I credit Big Mouth, the animation show I do on Netflix, similarly, which is I think I learned weirdly in that of like, in exercising some of the demons of, of adolescence and sort of addressing some of the things that like, haha, it was so funny that I got pantsed when I was 13. Haha, funny, funny. It's like, well, no, that shit, like there's some foundational stuff in there that when I examine in my art and in therapy, you're like, oh no, that cuts deep and makes you scared of opening up to pants, pants, yeah, to new pants and to new relationships and everything in between. Well, and there's a lot in between. Sometimes you'd wish more in between, but it's, uh, I think it is, <laughs> I do think doing an hour and allowing myself to really open up to someone and jump headfirst into a relationship and a family, those things are very weirdly, I think, very tied together. Now that you're a father and now that Lily, your wife, is a mother. Why don't we take a look at this new bit in the special where you talk about your parents? Okay, so this is from uh, your new comedy special, Little Big Boy, now on Netflix. Let's take a listen. Why are we so mean to our mom? Why am I still mean to my mom? <laughs> you guys, and you're like, I'm not mean to my mom. I love my mom. Okay. Here's my impression of every single one of you getting a phone call from your mother. Okay, here it goes. Fuck. That's it. It's perfect. It's a perfect impression. I have no shorter fuse with anyone in my life than I do my own mother. My mom could be like, I'm forwarding you an article about the L.A. Art Deco movement. And I'm like, why would you do that? <laughs> you know Art Deco is like my least favorite architectural movement. Meanwhile, dads get off scot-free. I remember my dad would call me on the phone and be like, hey, son, wanted to come to your baseball game today, but then didn't. <laughs> and I'm like, that's okay, daddy. <laughs> my mom's like, I like that jacket on you. I'm like, what about all my other jackets? <laughs> Thoughts? <laughs> now that I'm a parent, I do think we are harder on our mothers than we are on our fathers. What I didn't get into in the special, frankly, because moms are just more important to children. Therefore, it's a more charged relationship. We're harder on our mothers. Is that how you felt growing up? To some extent. I mean, I think my parents were and are both very important to me. But I also think, you know, my dad was working a ton when I was growing up. I never felt like he wasn't there, but he was working a ton. And my mom was very busy herself, but was there every moment day to day. And so there was things that she just had to deal with that my dad didn't. You know, it was also just a different time in parenting. You came of age in the 80s, is that right? Yeah. Your mom, Lynn, dad, Jules. Your father founded Kroll Inc., a uh, corporate intelligence firm that the New York Times called Wall Street's Private Eye. Mm -hmm. Now, growing up in Westchester County... I read that, and correct me if I'm wrong, you grew up on the tough streets of Rye, <laughs> New York. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You didn't even have your own tennis court. Yeah. Is that true? And, and I'm wondering, have you healed <laughs> since then? That was one of my first jokes of like trying to figure out how to talk about growing up with a ton of privilege. I was like, well, it's an economical version of that joke. <laughs> Rye is a very beautiful place to grow up and very privileged. And it's been interesting, you know, the internet was not around even when I started doing comedy. And so... Googling someone and their family and all that stuff was harder. I feel pretty good about like looking back. I was like, I was never selling some other version of myself. As you may or may not know, I, I read every interview someone does before these. I can tell. I think you've been yourself the whole way. <laughs> it's been pretty consistent. Pretty consistent. Yeah. Well, I think when you have a father who works in investigations, <laughs> you know, everything is discoverable. But it was, you know, it was interesting, like growing up, 
it was definitely my mom who was sort of tougher day to day than my dad was. How so? She just was the one who was had to run everything during the day because my he was building this company. And so when I got into high school and I started to like, you know, get in a little trouble that he would have to kind of, it wasn't like he had to come in and enforce, but then he would, I used to have some like people over in high school and there were very specific parameters for what could happen or like what they expected of us. And it was like, all right, well, like your friends can drink, but they have to stay over, no marijuana, stuff like that. And, you know, I woke up the next morning after a party, ironically, Andrew Goldberg, my best friend who I created Big Mouth with was over that night was sleeping over and woke up the next morning. My dad came out and was like, kind of interrogated me. You know, it was like, who was here? Da, da, da. Was there drinking? Yes. Was there marijuana? And I was like, yeah, you know what I mean? And and it was like, I had not experienced that version of him really. Um, and he got right to it. More than anything, it was just a massive violation of his trust. High school for me was a real push and pull on that. It's interesting because Big Mouth is set in middle school. And that's traditionally when puberty begins for boys and girls, you were a little bit of a late bloomer, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You said once that I didn't get my first pubic hair until around the age of 14. Yeah, at least. Not till after graduating eighth grade or moving out of eighth grade that I was like, I remember that summer being like, just like praying and like for <laughs> pubes and then like naming them. You named them? Yeah. One and two. <laughs> because I, there were only two? Yeah, there were only two. I was just trying to will puberty onto myself. <laughs> Once you're in high school and you do hit puberty, what were those changes like? You mentioned the push and pull between you and your parents. Did you become more temperamental? Did you turn into like a moody teenager as most of us do? Yeah, I think I, the volatility that many kids experience in middle school really hit me more in high school. And I think that was a mix of both physically what was happening to me and the hormones that were coursing through my veins. But also I went to a new school, you know, I'd kind of like a Jewish day school. And so like I'm, I stacked up pretty well. <laughs> and then I went to this, I went to a private high school, but it was, it was pretty waspy. Even though there was a ton of Jewish kids there, I still felt all of a sudden the culture was just different. And I had a group of friends who I now look back on and were like a good group of friends. But at the time, I did not feel on stable footing with with my friends. How so? It was never clear. It was like, you're in. You know what I mean? Because I was also new to the place. And through junior year, I was like, where do I stand? The things that they valued, the school value, were not what I was aspiring towards. And so I really just didn't feel on solid footing. Plus, I was going through puberty later. So I was more volatile. And because of that, I think I just was a little bit out to sea and behaving irrationally or, or probably was not knowing it was probably somewhat depressed and therefore making it hard for my parents to, to sort of connect or parent me properly. Come junior year of high school, mm-hmm. you talked about feeling a little more comfortable. I think that's also around the time you go to mountain school. What did that experience do for you? Yeah, it's this place, this place called the Mountain School, and it's in Vermont. It's like a 45 kids, one semester of your junior year. They, they're sending schools from a bunch of fancy boarding schools in, this, in the Northeast, but then also they're now more and more, I think, aspire to bring in kids from all different backgrounds, socioeconomically, geographically, everything. And you live on a farm. You're responsible for everything, the maintenance of the farm. There's no... You know, there's like a maintenance guy, but there's no staff. There's you're no 17. You're 17. You're reading Thoreau and Emerson and you're we were doing a lot of environmental science. You're doing a lot of solos in the woods. And you signed up for this? I signed up for it. My sisters had gone. So I saw what had they had gone and loved it. In retrospect, I was like, oh, I just was so excited to get away from this school. And and what I found there is the teachers were amazing. What we were studying was interesting, but more than anything, the other kids there were weird and they were excited about weird stuff and they were valued individualism and they valued the idea that you could be interested in esoteric thought, like going for a walk in the woods and talking about fucking Kant or Miles Davis. Which is what you were looking for. Yeah, and I don't even think I knew I was looking for it, but I, I was looking for other people, kids to be like, it's okay to be weird and it's okay to not conform and it's okay to both have big big thoughts and also be a total idiot Mm. and those are both okay and they're not mutually exclusive 
And then it sent me back to my regular high school in my life and was like, oh, I love my friends. I can enjoy them. But also like there's this whole world of other people out there that are going to value the things that I'm excited about in myself. So when you do step out into that other world, the life beyond high school, you go to Georgetown University, I think within your first few months, you spot a flyer for funniest act on campus. Mm -hmm. When you sign up for this contest, did you have a bit in mind? Did you have like your tight five ready to go? No, I don't know what I was thinking. I hadn't really thought like, I'm going to go be a performer. It really was like a whim. But I think it was sort of me internally being like, no, this is exactly what you want to do. I had a bit that I did poorly that I was going to get on stage and be like, boy, I thought I was going to be so nervous, but I'm totally relaxed. And then I was going to piss my pants. It was a very meta bit. It was easier to come up with a meta bit than it was to like write five mm -hmm. minutes of material. I was quite nervous. I got drunk beforehand. I did not prepare. I was mm. going to pop a water balloon in my pants. I didn't come prepared. I filled a sandwich bag with water. I jammed a pen into the sandwich bag. <laughs> the bit did not work at all. I bombed <laughs> tremendously. But Mike Birbiglia, who was a sophomore at the time, was an incredibly talented comedian and filmmaker, storyteller. He did have a tight five and he won that competition. But he saw me bomb and he thought I bombed funny. What does that mean? It means like you watch someone bomb and I've now watched fucking thousands of people bomb over the 20 <laughs> years I've been doing this. And some people you're like, oh, that guy's bombing. and It's a bummer. And you're like, oh, that guy's bombing. And it's very funny because they are funny. And you can tell the difference. I think so. Partly it's like even then I bombed and I didn't panic. I just bombed. I was like, hey, this audience does not like me. But I then talked about it. I was like, here's what I was trying to do. On stage. On stage. <laughs> and I think Mike saw it and was like, oh, that's, this person's funny. And then invited me to, to audition for a sketch comedy show that he and a, a group of now friends who I've now been friends with for 20 years, some people who are uh, Allison Becker, Brian Donovan, Ed Harrow. I did it and loved it and was like, this is what I want to do. You said once, I went to the first read-through of all the sketches in someone's apartment, and I walked out of that read-through, and it was really one of the few times in my life where it was like, oh, this is it. This is what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. Do you remember walking out of the apartment and, and having that yeah. image? I mean, I think it's funny, like, talking to you now, because you you have done your research inside of this, and, like, I'm slightly allergic to, like, people's, like, created narratives, but I think, like, stories, as we all tell, stories get broken up into these very, like, sort of condensed moments, like, in a film or a TV show that you're like, and this represents this moment of, like, hey, Ray Charles, like, you know, like, you've got Georgia on your mind. And I, and I do hope that we win Oscars for this podcast. We are going to. First Oscar for a podcast ever. But it, it really, this was one of those particular moments where I walked out, and I very clearly being in, in Red Square, which is in, in Georgetown, it's like a big, the central courtyard of the center of much of of Georgetown's campus. And I have a very clear memory walking back to my dorm and just feeling energized on a level that I had ever felt really before. And it was because I was like, I had gone to someone's apartment. We read like 20 sketches and they were like, read this five lines from this sketch and read this from this, you know. And I just was like, oh, because I had grown up watching Saturday Night Live and Mel Brooks and all this stuff. And I'd been doing silly voices my whole life, but I just never, you know, I'd done like a couple plays, but doing a play is so different than doing a sketch. And what was in my, what was so in my already in my artistic DNA, I think, was doing sketch comedy, doing characters, doing voices. And, and all of a sudden I got to like be in a thing that was going to allow me to do that. And I felt so unbelievably comfortable and so clear about what step to take. Whereas even it took me a lot longer with stand-up to get there, 20 years to get there to be like, no, I know what foot to put right in front of the other. Mm -hmm. Starting with sketch comedy, I was like, no, I instinctually I know exactly what voice to do for this character and how to play this and read this right. And and I've felt some seminal version of that in that first read-through and through the process of doing that show. You know, we did like 40 rehearsals for a one-night show, but I just knew it and felt it from the jump. When you go to Georgetown... There's some part of you, as you said, that doesn't exactly know what you want to do. There is some voice inside of you that is guiding you there, mm -hmm. but you almost don't have the language for it. 
And I was wondering, what did that voice sound like? Was that was that like a Jason Statham in there? <laughs> Go do it. No, I think it was, it didn't have a voice. Again, I come from a place of great privilege and opportunity. If I had wanted to go into become a lawyer or go into banking or go into any other profession, that path was very clear. It just wasn't in the mix of like, oh, well, like you'll go become a, a writer, actor, comedian. It just wasn't. So it was like I grew up watching Mel Brooks and Saturday Night Live and every other film and TV. And I was like, wow, like that's what I would want to do. But it never crossed my mind that I could actually do it. Like right before I went to college, I was living and working in Wyoming at this in this very small town in Dubois, Wyoming. I was working at this restaurant, a fine dining restaurant. You had to wake up every day at 5 a.m.? Yeah, it fucking sucked. To do, like, to, <laughs> I was washing dishes at the restaurant. and That's the most unbelievable part of your story. To walk in, waking up at 5 a.m. to do dishes? Well, there was the <laughs> breakfast. You had to finish off what was the night before and get ready for the lunch, the lunch menu. It was great. The food was amazing. I met great people, but you can't charm dishes, you know? But you have tried. Trust me, I've tried. Uh, they don't find me funny. But weirdly, so Harrison Ford lived in Jackson Hole. He would fly his plane from Jackson Hole to Dubois, uh, like a literal 15, 20-minute flight. It's like an hour and a half drive to the restaurant. You know. <laughs> you know how people do. Anyway, he he flew in to eat at the restaurant, and the owners of the restaurant sent me to pick his party up from the airstrip. Mm. You know, as the daytime dishwasher, but also they were like, you know how to fucking talk to anybody. You're a rich kid, you know? So I was like, okay. So I picked him up and I just was like trying to charm him from the moment I picked him up till the moment I dropped him off. What did you say? I'm sure I was just trying to be funny. I was just like jokes, you know? The fugitive was really riveting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like when you jumped out of that pipe, um, <laughs> you know, I then like now look back at that moment and I think in my the back of my head, I was like, if Harrison Ford finds me funny and charming enough, he'll figure out how to make me a movie star. <laughs> <laughs> and that is exactly what happened. And that's exactly what happened. I dropped him off at the airport back in Jackson. Right before he got on the plane, he was like, you got it, kid. <laughs> uh, he is a bit of a mumbler in person. But anyway, I then met him years ago. Later, we were both in the secret life of pets, too. And he remembered every part of that interaction, right? Every single frame. All the jokes. He had written them down for some reason. He knew them all. He was like, I've been waiting to meet you again. But I got to tell him that story. And, and he sort of looked at me and he's like, well, you did it. There were things like that where I was like, I didn't know that I was like exactly how to get to what I wanted to do. But I think in the back of my head, I wanted it. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes Workflows and delivery of care were already great, but they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first-place winner in the industry category at last year's Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. 
You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Once you know that comedy is the path you have to go down, you pursue it first at Georgetown, then when you graduate, move to New York City, immediately start performing at a comedy club called Rafifi in the East Village. But I'm curious about how you developed this comedic process, which is observing and absorbing all the people around you on the train, in a restaurant, in the bookstores, and turning that into characters. Mm. It sounds a little bit like the lead character in that movie Following. Mm, I don't know it. Christopher Nolan's first movie. Oh, I, have, I don't know it. The character is a writer, a young writer, uh -huh. who sort of follows people around the city in search of material. Uh -huh. And this kind of sounds like what you did. Me and Nolan, our process has always been very similar. And that's going to be the headline from this podcast. He's always been my rival. Kroll says very similar to Chris Nolan. Yeah, my... <laughs> <laughs> But I think it is it is like most artists, uh, dare I call myself that. I think you just did. I did. I, I really started actually, I think around when I turned 40, I was like, yeah, I'm an artist. You know, it's like, it's okay. I make art. Was that the voice inside yeah. of you? Yeah, I make art. <laughs> Especially if you do comedy, it's embarrassing to like, it feels embarrassing to call yourself an artist. Yeah. But it's like, no, I make art. It's like, so he... What he did, and I, got, I would love to go back and watch that movie. It's like, well, so many of us do is we're observing and we're then, you know, we're trying to figure out how to process that and then put that into something. Some people use their family. Some people use themselves. Some people. But so much of my early days in New York was just like sitting around and watching people in the street or on the subway. And eventually, as I got more well-known and was less anonymous and which is a weird thing, I think, and for a lot of people as artists, when you become less anonymous, you can't anonymously watch people. You realize you are now being watched. And so it's harder to just like, you know, take down your little notes about what's happening around you. So then it led me to sort of like rely more on television and, and the internet to sort of build characters of like, oh, well, I can't go to a bar and just like watch a douchebag hit on a girl. But now I've got Jersey Shore or I've got YouTube clips of, you know, true life, whatever it is, wherever you gather your specifics from, whether it's the subway or it's from YouTube or whatever, we're all just trying to gather specifics to make something that feels 
truthful. And I have always found that in specifics, you find the universal. And so that has been always the the process for me. And sometimes in more recent years, as opposed to just like observing like some kid on the subway or some man in a bookstore who's quite different than me, some of that observation has become much more internal, you know, observing myself and trying to dig in on the specifics of myself and hoping to find universality in those Mm. specifics. Whether it's people you're watching on YouTube or people on the subway, Mm -hmm. you tend to lean towards characters that as John Mulaney likes to say, exclaim how important they are. (laughs) Uh Was turning those obnoxious people into comedic characters your way of saying what you wanted to say to them in real life but couldn't? Was it some form of retribution? I mean, what's funny is it's like, oh, I fucking hate that person. Not always, (laughs) but oftentimes it's like, I hate that person you know, the kind of a douchebag kind of Bobby Bottle Service character that I did. What did he sound like again? Oh, excuse me. You know, like, oh, very cool podcast, bro. You know, like I started doing them right before Jersey Shore came out and then Jersey Shore came out and it was like, oh, this archetype is very familiar now to a lot of people. And I think it started as a way that I would actually talk to my girlfriends who were getting hit on by that kind of guy. Like, excuse me, can I, can I ask you a question? Do you date me? You know, and my girlfriends would find it very funny and charming. <laughs> it was a way for me to kind of like be like, see, I, I know what you're going through. But I think it's a combination of both. I don't like this person. And this is my way of, frankly, of like castigating them for their behavior. But then also then finding empathy for them mm. because I am dropping into their point of view and see like, oh, well, this guy's like this because of that. But in some ways making these characters, what you see is some version of yourself in some small way. Maybe we do see some worst version of us in Bobby Bottle Service. For sure. It's all things that live. I guess I'm a Gemini. I've never quite fully integrated, understood, or cared very much about signs, but I am like without truly understanding very little about (laughs) astrological signs, I'm like, oh, I guess it would make sense that I play a bunch of characters that are some facet of me, that I am living out some part of my personality, whether it be like Bobby Bottle Service or Coach Steve or Lola or Dr. Armand or Jason Statham. These are all like elements of myself that I get to exercise in these characters Uh, that allow then me, Nick Kroll, to be somewhat controlled in my actual life. When you look back on The Kroll Show, it runs from 2013 to 2015. Mm -hmm. What character or sketches still make you laugh? I mean, I look back now being like, wow, I can't believe we made that particular thing or put that in the first episode or whatever. Like what? Well, there's a sketch in the first episode that we were, I was just talking to my buddies about called Sex in the City for Dudes. The sketch was basically, as a group of friends, when anything would happen, we'd then go, sex in the city for dudes. And it was just like, became a very silly slice of life sketch of like 10 people at dinner and be like, you want to split this 10 ways? (laughs) Sex in the city for dudes. So there are sketches like that. But then there's also in that first episode, which then what I have found, I can't speak to what I think we got right, but I do think what still I get told about a lot, I think is publicity. Uh, me and Jenny Slate, two publicists named Liz. Weirdly, that has lived on very successfully as GIFs. GIFs, uh, there's a lot of me as this as my character Liz. What do you sound like? Oh my God, that's amazing. There are publicists listening to this podcast right now. <laughs> uh, they, But it's really, it's publicists, but it's really a genre of woman. And men, it's a specific kind of person that it really wasn't like, oh, this is this publicist. It was like, this is this kind of person who's like drinks massive iced coffees from sippy cups. And I like that as both you and I are drinking iced coffees. As I'm drinking a massive iced coffee. But something about that weirdly has resonated. I think it was also like we were digging way into reality. It was right as reality shows were becoming a massively important part of pop culture. What's funny is depending on who you are, if you approach me about Kroll Show, oftentimes you'll be like, Rich Dicks. It's about a couple of me and John Daly who are these rich dicks, Wendy, Sean, and Aspen Bruckenheimer. They're just like, you know, like, what's up? Like, oh my God, I love your podcast. I like, I want to I make your podcast in a movie 
we're going to the Bahamas. We're going to be there for a month. We're going to do some schneef. We're going to just like lay this down. We're going to figure out how to turn the podcast into a movie. It's going to be great. I'm, I'm already talking to Nick Cage. He's very interested. I'm funding his next movie. Those guys come up to me and are like, I fucking love Rich Sticks. You know, people who are like Bobby Bottle Service come and be like, bro, Bobby Bottle Service? Are you joking me, dude? That's fucking hilarious. You know, and I think they can identify because they know that they know the specifics of this person and then simultaneously don't exactly see themselves as that person. Mm -hmm. And both can be true, but I definitely have witnessed that. <laughs> in the years in the years since Kroll Show ended and Big Mouth began, you've heeded some criticism around some stereotypes or some voices or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, which parts of the backlash do you think were fair and what do you think was unfair? Um... You know, I think I have received, in the grand scheme of comedians getting, like, I think I've gotten off pretty easy. Why do you say that? There's definitely characters I would not do today that I'm like, oh, times have changed. Like, I don't know if I do Fabrice Fabrice, a character that was on Kroll Show that I did for many, many years, who was the craft services coordinator for That's So Raven. I would now describe him as like pansexual, Latino. There's just no world where I would be like, you know what, I'm going to start doing. Uh, but at the time, it was like, eh, we were all doing anything. Again, this is not excusing it or endorsing it or apologizing for it. It's just like times have changed. But it's also not that long ago. No, no. It's like less than a decade. For sure. I mean, there's things that there are things that we started doing on Big Mouth five, six years ago as we went through with, you know, Jenny Slate and playing Missy that we would not do now. That changed, frankly, it felt like overnight. It wasn't overnight, but that's how it felt. And I think art is malleable and flexible and changes. And what is acceptable changes. I think I just tend to not be a terribly defensive person. Well, except in basketball. Except in basketball, I'm a mainly a defender. The rest of my life, I'm like, <laughs> being a defender doesn't feel like the, my, my best use of my time. But on the basketball court where I lack skill, let's see if I can wiggle out an analogy here. <laughs> On the basketball court, I don't feel like I have many weapons besides playing good defense. In my art, I feel like playing defense is my least useful weapon. There's always more jokes to tell. When I look back at it, I'm like, I wouldn't do that character today. But also, I don't think for the most part, like while I was doing a character like Fabrice, the jokes I was telling were not at the expense of his his ethnicity or, or his sexuality. That was never my intention to... But I definitely have jokes that I've told that I'm like, ooh, boy, I don't like that joke anymore. I wouldn't tell that joke, you know? To me, it's like, if you've offended somebody, sometimes it's justified, sometimes it's not. For the most part, it's like, there's something to be learned there. But I think it's, you know, people are very into right now being like, cancel culture and da-da-da. I'm just sort of like, maybe it's just who I am. I'm just sort of like, I'd rather just come up with new things and still find a way to be interesting and provocative and surprising and do my best not to bum people out. I wonder how much of your malleability and an approach to change comes from, in part, this trip you took in 2019 with your extended family in the Galapagos. Mm, mm -hmm. Somewhere along the way, you spot a marine iguana. Is this right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What yeah, did yeah. that do for you at that time as you're receiving this sort of public backlash? We went to the Galapagos, and Galapagos, obviously famous, Darwin coming up with his theories there. But what was interesting when I was there and talking to the guides, it was like, it, the guide sort of made this point that it was like, Darwin wasn't talking about survival of the fittest, even though he was. It was like the power of adaptation, of constantly adapting, that it's not being the strongest. It's about, can you adapt to whatever your environment is? And so there were these marine iguanas the ones that were able to survive and continue to propagate were the ones that genetically figured out after getting a bird swooping down and biting their tail off, the ones that could then grow a tail back, survived, propagated, and lived on, and then they became the dominant version of marine iguanas living in Galapagos. And I took that to heart for my art in how do we continue to adapt? How can I continue to adapt as a comedian, as a writer, as a performer, once I, you start to dig your heels in about being like, this is what I do, and, and people are telling me I can't do this anymore, well, fuck them. Perhaps that malleability is my insecurity that I 
there are certain great artists who are like, this is what I do. And that's what makes them special. They're intractable. Yeah. I've never been that person because I'm just too insecure to be like, I'm a genius. So I need to be like, oh, that is that not working? Okay, let me try something else. You have to continue to adapt. You have to continue to try to find new ways to get towards the core, which is like make people laugh, hopefully talking about some some truths in the human experience. In this new piece of art, mm -hmm. as you've changed, adapted, tried something new in this special, which is maybe more human, more vulnerable than, say, Bobby Pondle service. <laughs> you talk about having a kid in 2021. The day that they're born, what did that do to you? Well, I think it made me more, because even when you're just partnered with someone, married or in a like lifetime partnership with them, you can theoretically walk away at any point, physically and emotionally. It's hard, but it can be done. When you have a child, for the rest of your life, you are responsible for that child. And to some degree, you are responsible to that person you had that child with. That's how I feel. And there is a great amount of pressure and onus on both people to think about someone else, to think about two other people in every life decision you make from that point forward. Mm. When I was touring my special, when I was touring The Hour, it was called, at that point called Middle-Aged Boy. And that's what it was, is I'm middle-aged, but I'm still a boy, da, da, da. Ultimately, it comes down to that, which is, I felt like a child because I was able to make decisions about my life in a very selfish way, like a child does. I don't have to think about the consequences besides myself. But as soon as you have a child, you have to start to think about like every decision you make, like, am I going to take that job that takes me to Vancouver for three months? Am I going to stay out late and have dinner tonight with a friend? Have I gotten like chicken for enough dinner? Did I get money out to pay the nanny? You all of a sudden have a tremendous amount of decisions that you have to figure in not one, but two people at every moment. And it's a relief to not think about self first and foremost at all times. So in some ways you needed someone else to look beyond yourself. Yes, so that I could then think more intently about myself. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've cracked it. <laughs> there it is. In 2009, you gave one of your earliest interviews to the AV Club and they asked you, why sketch comedy over stand-up comedy or whatever? Mm -hmm. Here's what you said. The short answer is, I started doing stand-up and improv at the same time in New York. I realized I could understand the character's point of view better than my own. It was easier to vocalize an Upper West Side middle-aged divorcee, but it was tougher to know myself. I guess as we leave, I'm wondering, 13 years from that interview age 44, husband, father. Are you closer to understanding that point of view? Mm. Yeah, I think so. And I really credit the things that I've made over the last 13 years to help me understand that person better. And I still think it's a lifelong journey that we're on to figure out who we are, both for, in my case, to make the things I make, but for all of us, that's the great joy and challenge of living is like trying to understand who we are and then using that understanding to like live in this life. And uh, hopefully my child finds something that they like doing as much as I like doing what I get to do. Um, that's like the great blessing of my life among many blessings. So I hope that one day that they get to find similar joy in their work and in their life that I have found and hopefully will continue on for many, many years when I'm a massively successful 95-year-old sketch comedian. Well, I wish that for your kid doing the thing they love. Yeah. I wish that for your next chapter, whatever the hell that is. Thank you. I hope it maybe includes basketball. <laughs> you got it. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to come back out. Are you okay? If nothing more comes out of this podcast, <laughs> at least it will get me back to the court where I belong. Turning beet red, <laughs> missing three-pointers, and hopefully playing some good defense. You always do. Thank you. You too. Nick Kroll, thanks again. Thanks, Sam.
And that's our show. Special thanks this week to Mason Harris, Jillian Roscoe, and Daniel Billington at IDPR. I'd also like to thank Sari Eichenblatt and, of course, Nick Kroll. His new special, Little Big Boy, is now available to stream on Netflix. You can also check out season six of Big Mouth, premiering on October 28th, only on Netflix. To learn more about Nick, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I'd recommend our episodes with Bill Hader, Abby Jacobson, Quinta Brunson, Lena Dunham, Nick Offerman, Hiro Mirai, Meg Stalter, and John Early. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. It was engineered by Tim Moore out of York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara and Lindsay Ellis. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Photographs by Maria Alvarez. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gabrzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries. Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talk Easy. I'll see you back here on Sunday with director James Gray. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. 